The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, Dan Ives of Wedbush Securities. Um, Dan, for those who are not familiar with your background, I always like to start off very broad. Talk about uh, who you are, how'd you get involved in the tech side of investing, and what are you doing at Wedbush? Yeah, I mean, I've covered tech stocks since late 99, early 2000. Started the career at a business school at FBR. You know, that was really where I started to focus on tech from the beginning. And look, when I joined FBR, it was big tech-focused bank going into really height of 99, early 2000 in terms of dot-com. So I saw the bubble and burst front and center covering stocks. You know, started covering stocks as a senior analyst in 03. And look, really, since I broadened out my coverage, you know, from traditional cybersecurity and software to, you know, to obviously broader tech you know, from, from Apple to, to Microsoft to Tesla and others in terms of disruptive tech. And look, I've always had a similar DNA. I mean, we've never really listened to the noise. We do a lot of work and we've tried to stick with our thesis throughout. And and that's and obviously we've always been tilted bullish, I mean ultimately. And if we believe in a thesis and do the work and we have passion for it we're, we're going to stick to our you know, knitting. And, and that's always been our, our sort of thesis. And I think that's how we've gained you know, what I like to think is a lot of credibility among buy side over the last uh, 21 years. All right. So I want to start off very, very basic and then drill down kind of from the top to the bottom here. Um, first, I know this is going to sound like a very rudimentary question, but define tech for a moment, because you can make an argument, obviously, that tech is in every single industry and classifications can be notoriously difficult. Amazon's a good example. Yeah, I mean, look, and also disruptive tech, right? Because like, I I mean, it goes back to like Tesla. Like I don't, I've never defined Tesla as an automobile company. I view them as disruptive technology. And ultimately, yeah, and obviously there's a debate there, right? I mean, you know, in, ter- in terms of th- that name in particular, but, but look, my view in terms of our focus, it's started off in software and obviously it's moved more and more from an enterprise to consumer front on from the tech perspective and more and more it's become a utility right if i think about cloud where microsoft's position and amazon the aws side or google 
that just gives you just such insight to some of the trends that's happened in cybersecurity, whether it's CrowdStrike or Octa or Zscale or whatever. And I think, look, and, and that's, you know, our view is technology has really overtaken so many different areas of the landscape because it's almost become a utility for enterprise and consumers. And that's sort of, and our coverage is kind of, you know, I think evolved accordingly. Okay. So, so, and you mentioned the term disruptive and that's another term obviously that has a lot of maybe subjective uh, uh, classifications around that, but let's, let's focus on the, that term disruptive for a moment, because I think we went from disruptive being a a good word in terms of being uh, something visionary about the future versus uh, disruptive, which is just code for uh, negative earning uh, tech stocks. Uh, talk about how you think about the word disruptive. What makes something disruptive? And is there any way at all to be really disruptive and have profit? I mean, I, Microsoft generates more cash in some countries, and they're disruptive. So, I mean, my I mean, my view is like disruptive. I think you have to bifurcate it. Like I view disruptive as if in covering software. If I go back to if I go back to 2001, 2002, the view is like when you think about the shift to cloud, the view is like, okay, everything's going to stay perpetual, on-premise. Cloud was kind of pie in the sky. But ultimately, look where we are today. I mean, 45% of workloads are in the cloud. It's cheap. It's, it's changed the world. And not just from a consumer, but of course, on the enterprise. And I do believe you can do disruptive profitably. But I think the big thing is, like, Michael, I think the big thing is just scale. Like, for so many companies that I cover in tech, I feel like once you get to half a billion in revenues or ARR from a scale perspective, from a sales and marketing and from an R&D perspective, from there on, it could really scale from a profitable cash flow perspective. And look, there's many that have evolved from Splunk to Palo Alto, Salesforce.com, you know, to, to Adobe, among others. But I do believe, like to, to your point, in the beginning, special outcomes have gone public early. It's it's extremely difficult because you're to do it profitably when you're in an arms race against companies that have fifty to a hundred billion of cash. That's tough. And I think it also speaks why I believe there's gonna be more consolidation, especially during this downturn. Yeah, and I think I think part of this this um almost like vitriolic reaction to the word disruptive, you can argue maybe came from a lot of the focus around ARC and some of these types of sure companies, definitely. right? That that that, you know, obviously were high flyers, you know, in the midst of the lockdown and then came crashing down yep. to earth. Yeah, no but, doubt. <laughs> but 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 I guess the question is and this is maybe more of a, a, a business uh, question, but it, it, I have to assume it's easier to be disruptive when you're a smaller cap company or a micro cap company than if you're a larger cap company because you gotta be able to move the needle, right, in terms of revenue. And Microsoft you mentioned, you know, it's disruptive, but depending upon how you define the services that they're providing, you can make the case that, okay, they may be disruptive because they have some algorithm that is more efficient, but it's not going to really make them uh, move their, their top line too much. Well, and the install base. And I think that's why so many companies, like if you could come as like C3AI, okay, it's a good, you know, Tom Siebel, uh, you know, obviously Siebel Systems. Who could C3AI, like in this market, and they've had results last night, which are pretty soft and lower guidance. Like, 
Okay, that's disruptive. It's 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 large, well say AI driven deals, starting utilities. They're trying to broaden out into other areas. That's extremely difficult because they don't have the scale. They'll continue to burn cash. And it goes back to the competition. Now, but look, but also like in software, like when you look at margins that are basically all go to the bottom line from a software perspective, especially when you think about subscription models, maintenance, and a lot of the R&D in the rearview mirror, there is huge scale that could happen there. And I think that, look, I think that ultimately goes to like why, like why we continue to be bullish on selective tech here is that like, I'm not saying in the next three to six months is not going to be a negative environment. And it's, but, but on the other side of that, I believe a lot of these companies, Salesforce-ish, Palo Alto, Adobe, I'm just giving examples where there's companies like they could be the next Palo Alto or the next Adobe. But, but also like a lot of, you know, a lot of times I go over Twitter, I, you know, of course, like the haters, like just so much negative, especially in these type of markets. How do you stay bullish, bullish? Look, it just goes back to like over the last 20 years, like when we've done work many times, we've gone through periods of market turbulence and it would have been easy to throw in the towel. But yet by staying bullet and, you know, without going through the specific names, like that was the right call. That, that really cemented our view among, you know, from a buy side perspective, right? That's how we really gain credibility. So more and more as we do the work, if we feel that those trends are going to continue, disruptive, but specifically cloud, cybersecurity. I mean, those specifically on the software side continue to be my view. And then, of course, like when it comes to like disruptive, my view of like where EVs are going, we can hit in that. And that's why we're bullish on those sectors. But, but I think it's also important to, because again, I'm a big fan of defining things properly. When, when bullish is a function of two things, right? It's either bullish on an absolute basis or bullish on a relative basis, meaning down less if you're in a bear market. And then the other aspect of that is, okay, bullish over what time frame, right? So when you're, as you know, on the institutional side, at least in theory, you should be longer term. And you should be viewing junctures like this as, quote unquote, buying opportunities or reallocating opportunities, right, to the uh, tech names, for example, that are getting maybe unfairly punished relative to a very, very longer term outlook. I think the problem to your point about Twitter is it's much more short term in the way the bull bear discussions are framed. Definitely. And the absolute relative is not even part of the discussion. That's, I, you know, and I think that's like the one, you know, when I've done like a lot of like podcasts or events, like this, sometimes, like investors are like, well, you know, it's very focused on like next 30, 60 days or in, in a market, especially in a volatile market, you know, where it's very easy from a center end perspective. But for, look, for our clients, like, which is basically what I do, you know, every day, it's like hand holding it through periods where sometimes it's a, it's a contrary call. Because we just do the work, right? Like if I talk to customers and I talk to CIOs and I see demand continues to be robust in cybersecurity going at least from now going into early 2023, like why would I be – no, and I'm, it's like rhetorical, but like why would I then be negative on Palo Alto if our checks are strong and I feel that numbers could continue to go higher? So that's – I'm just trying to like walk you through like how we do the work and 
at least what's been our DNA, you know, um, as an analyst. And, and maybe want to add a nuance there, of course, is that, you know, because you mentioned channel checks, that's also talking about it from the perspective of being positive bullish on the company, which obviously can be very different than being you know, positive bullish on the stock. Sure. And I think you have to, there's no doubt you have to separate in terms of valuations and in terms of, but di- there could be a good company, but it might not be a good stock relative to valuation or relative to the market or risk off. I mean, it's a good example. Like DocuSign was our favorite name during COVID, but we have a sell rating on it today. It's still a good company, but I, I view the risk where that changed massively post-pandemic. So I think that's just a good example of like, you know, sometimes there's good companies, not good stocks. But then also it's like it's relative to trends too, right? Where I think like, like I mean, Apple is a good example. Like if we're, if we do work in Asia, and and we continue to see firm demand for iPhone 14, and we believe the street continues to underestimate the underlying demand cycle, then we're going to continue to stay bullish on that thesis, regardless of day to day sentiment, or you know more and more we'll call it whisper numbers that continue to you know beat down. I'll say you know like in a, in a downtrend. Well, no, but that's like to your point. I actually think with blockchain, especially from like where everything's heading from a cloud perspective versus centralized versus decentralized, I think that's going to be like a. I think that more and more is going to be like a big theme going forward. And like, but just first off, like, like Doctor Sound would be a good example. Is like in theory. Like DocuSign is a name that, especially on a collaboration perspective, like that's a company that like would be quote unquote disruptive, should get bigger and bigger going from e-signature to broader and broader deals. But ultimately like that, that's actually, it's been the opposite the last six to nine months. Street's gone over the skis. And I actually think more and more competition, especially from Adobe and Microsoft are going to continue I think to be pretty, you know, prominent for them, and so that's why we're negative on on Docu. But, but in terms of blockchain, look, I think the big thing, like from a public company perspective, it's still early days. I think, like, look, there's like private companies, like Aviatrix is a good example, like where they play in like the hybrid cloud environment, and I think more and more from like a software developer perspective. I think there's going to be there mostly there the ones that we talk to are private companies that play in the quote unquote blockchain specifically on the software side, where you know I feel like they're extremely well positioned. Like, look, I think like there's examples like Filecoin and some others that are doing some interesting things when it comes to blockchain. What I see is a lot of my law. Because, like, obviously, I've, com- I've companies where, you know, like, they'll talk to me just to try to gauge things that are happening in the market and everything else. I sense that blockchain specifically, especially from a developer perspective where it's going, it started to really gain the ears of the larger software players. Because, because of where ultimately everything's going in terms of the cloud shift, and I'd say more and more, like, from a... There, of course, there's a centralized piece, but then there's 
there's a decentralized piece. And I, I wouldn't necessarily say the VC arm specifically, but I do believe like, forget on the crypto side, but blockchain is, you know, our view, like that's, that's not going away. That's going to become more and more, I'm going to call it mainstream, but especially in the next three, four, five years, it's going to be a trend that's, you know, I think going to be very front and center in software. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. How do you, um, or I guess maybe I should ask, do you uh, factor in broader macro market movement when you look at and analyze individual stocks? Because, you know, when I look at the S&P, obviously, you know, tech makes up 27% of the S&P. So if you're going to be in a bear market and be bearish just because of the amount of money that's gone into passive, by definition, that 20%, 27% has to get hit. The top 10, Tesla, Apple, those have to get hit just from the the fact that people are in the S&P, SPY as an example, ETF versus maybe the individual stocks. Um, does does the macro uh, beta environment impact any of your thoughts on uh, the analysis that you do for individual tech stocks at all? Well, it, well, I think on a few things. One, of course, multiple, right? And you know, where and then it goes back to you know the environments are so different relative to a Fed tightening versus you know loosening and what's happened with rates. I think the bigger thing that it plays into is ultimately the ripple effect into the demand environment because ultimately it always it goes back to like a two three step derivative and I think the demand environment clearly plays and I think it plays into multiples and also like look every I mean all we do every day is talk to institutional investors and I've done it since whatever for twenty one years and going so it's like I feel like we we also get a good sense in terms of like risk off risk on relative to what people are willing to pay, what companies need to do, whisper numbers going into print. And I think that helps us gauge too sometimes that we're not yelling into an empty forest. Because I do think sometimes like it's easy as an analyst to like just stay in a little cocoon. And I think that's a negative. I feel like you have to have a much broader understanding of what's going on because look, it's like you, because it, it, it's not in a vacuum, right? And and I'd say, like, to some extent, like, especially being bullish on tech, look, that's one, especially now, like, it's a queer headwind, right? Because every time I put a note out that's positive, no matter what time it is, I'll get, like, 10 or 15 emails being like, oh, stay, bu-. yeah, no way, you know, like, very negative. Well, so it just shows, like, sentiment right now, especially on individual stock basis, it's hard because even CrowdStrike, like that was a phenomenal print, phenomenal ARR, great. And look how the stock traded, right? So it's just like, you're not getting paid to hold names into prints until you are. 
And that's caused the risk off, at least on even on a micro basis across tech. And that's, you know, whether it's fighting the Fed or just fighting the market, that's something that like is clearly at play here. So what one of the narratives out there, Dan, uh, that I'm sure you've heard many times over is this idea that you don't want long duration risk assets in a rising rate environment. And that right. And that often and that relates actually very much directly to oil and the energy sector in the sense that if a large part of this inflationary pressure is due to oil, is due to energy, is due to energy uh, overall, then that cost push inflation makes rates continue to rise. And we know that oil correlates pretty highly to inflation break-evens, inflation expectations. So from that perspective, um, there's a lot of bullishness on the energy sector. I think you can make a very clear case that from a longer-term perspective, that's probably going to continue from a secular uh, on a secular level. But how do you think about uh, the technology sector's leadership potential um, when you have a rising rate environment driven by energy stocks, and it seems that tech might be a source of funding to reallocate into uh, energy, which is, I think, 4.5% or so of the S&P. Yeah, and of course, here and there. And, of, and over the years, I mean, I've, you know, I've worked in, in, in research where I've sat next to my energy analyst or sat next to my economist. I mean, there were times, like, I sat next to an economist for 10 years like literally, like like if I listened to him and he was awesome, like I don't think I've ever would have bought, bought tech stocks starting in 2010. So the narratives clearly shape it. Look, but my view is just it is a scarcity of growth, and from a tech perspective, in terms of where spending is going to be on enterprise and on consumer, I believe we're still like I call it like fourth industrial revolution, but. I believe we are in the like second, third inning of just this massive spending cycle that's going to continue on enterprise and on consumer tech for the names that we're bullish on in terms of trends, in terms of cloud, AI, cybersecurity, among others. So for us, we we get the narrative, but I just continue to view that the street underestimates the overall growth of many of these tech spaces if we go out into the next eight, 10 years. And just, just one example, like, like I believe like cybersecurity is going to grow four plus X times overall IT spend over the next four to five years. So if I believe that, despite even some of the, the rotations and everything else, to me, like I continue to own Palo and CrowdStrike and Zscaler. Would I be buying Oct on the dip here? You know, so it just kind of goes to, to my view of looking on to the other side of the, the storm. Okay, you had alluded to um, consolidation earlier. And, you know, presumably if, you know, this bear market, continues as it seems like it wants to um, because this inflation cycle is not done yet. Hopefully it does, hopefully it does get done. Uh, presumably there are going to be some real bombed out tech names and there will be some real acquisition opportunities. Uh, talk about how you think about the M&A cycle within the tech sector because obviously you've got a lot of really large cap, mega cap tech names which are super cash rich and we'll want to do something with that, right? So 
how do you think about maybe identifying what could be acquisition targets? Maybe not now, but down the line, because presumably that's coming. Sure. Well, you have that. I mean, look, you have basically from a strategic perspective, when you combine it, you have almost what I'll say six to 700 billion of dry powder. And then when you think from a private equity perspective, financial. Sorry, sorry Dan, hold on. Sorry. So on that 600, 700 billion of dry powder, how, how, I apologize for interrupting. How concentrated is that in, you know, the top 10? Mega oh yeah, they're probably eighty percent top ten. Right. Like, so soon, look, and that's why then you'd be like, oh, Apple hasn't bought made a major acquisitions in Beats, which is three point four billion, right? So then it goes back to like, well, why are they going to change now? Okay, then you go to Microsoft, obviously Activision, as well as Nuance. So you start to see some M and A there. There's obviously a regulatory question, you know, for everything, any move they make from Meta to Amazon. The alphabet is going to be closely scrutinized. But the point is strategic and financial. And I just want to say, like, the the P, the amount of money that's raised from a PE perspective and from VCs, you know, if you just look at, I mean, even look at, like, Bravo, you know, what they've done. You know, I mean, just when you look at some of these deals, SailPoint and Ping and obviously Proofpoint and others, I think cybersecurity is, like, going to be just the met the like front and center for massive consolidation. And the reason I say it is because more and more the cloud players, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, you know, Google in terms of GCP, IBM, they're going to have to look to acquire their own cyber tools because what's happening is becoming more and more of just a battle and you've seen it from solar winds to other issues from ransomware. Any security concerns hurt the cloud. And that's why, like, when I look at our top M&E counties, I look like CyberR. I look at Qualys. I look at Tenable, Rapid. Like, th- those are examples of co- – sale point was, and, and they obviously got acquired. So, like, to your point, like, that's why I think, like, as as investors sell some of these names, there's others that are sharpening their pencils to look to buy them from an M and A perspective. And look, and then it just goes back to like by covering tech so long, like I could just go back to like coming out of 2000, 2001, 2002, the consolidation that took place between 2003 and 2005 was massive in software. But at the point, at that time, like if, if you made those calls, this is just, you cannot make that call in this macro. But yet a lot of those were five, six baggers because there was just a consolidation trend. So, but, but I would just say, I would just say like, look, it's like, it's such a nervous environment right now. I mean, just to highlight, like last week, like I'm on a flight. And literally, like some some woman next to me, like older, you know, she like pink, she like hits me on the shoulder. I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh, do you need help with your tray? You know, she's like, I have a question. Like, would you would you sell tax stocks here? So it just speaks to like, and it, like it speaks to this environment where like it's such a nervous environment because of the headlines. But in my opinion, like. I don't view that as like time to panic. I view it as like the, the names that we love and the names that I think 
are going to be able to navigate this. I, I view those as like generational type names that are not names to sell because of because of what's going to happen next three, six months, nine months. And also the other thing I'd say is like, like, look, there's a lot of investors I talk to, like they've been negative for 13 years. So when they call me, they're like, what? You no, know, I'm just trying to say, I just understand. Like there's some people like, if they won the lotto, they'd complain about the taxes. They're just, ne- I get it. That's their shtick. That's what makes a market bull bear. But I'm just saying like so many that have basically missed the last seven, eight year run in tech. It's just like, okay, clock struck midnight. It's over, done. Keep being bullish. I just disagree. But that's, but again, that's, that's the work we do not to argue. How does the, uh, how does the bond market uh, play into some of these tech names? So obviously that's the catch rich ones, which might be having uh, debt only because of, you know, prior, uh, uh, financial engineering, right, so to speak, in terms of buybacks. But as rates have risen, spreads, you know, have widened, but not in a way that was that, uh, from my own analysis, was just it's sort of a real panic, at least not yet. How do um, how do credit spreads look within the broader tech space? And do you factor in? Presumably, you do because of NPV calculations. You know how interest rates are are yeah. likely to look. Yeah, but I think the bigger thing is just raising capital, right? Like. I mean, converts were being done on, on on a daily basis. You know, if you look like it's become clearly tighter. And I think the other thing, how it's impacted things, it's just like cost of capital, tighter liquidity, less IPOs. And I ultimately think it's, it's also forcing companies where like if they can't raise capital, they're going to have to start to cut versus, you know, continuing to spend. I, Okay, besides like MPV and DCF, I feel like that's the biggest thing that's really happened too. Is like there's companies that maybe are going to go public now they get they get bought. There's other companies that figure that they can just continue to spend like 1980 rock stars for the next five years. That's not going to happen. So now, look, and that's been a big issue in the EV space, right? With like a lot of the startups, like. Those are capital intensive businesses. If you can't continue to raise capital, then that's that that causes a, a big issue in terms of scaling. And I think that's even why like the whole EV space with 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 so many of the startups and so many of the promise. And of course, there's been you know a lot of well documented issues, but I think that's where capital has killed that space in terms of the the lack of ability to raise capital. Because those those models are built on those, and they can and they're not going to be profitable for you know three four years with negative gross margins. Well, I would say it for it's an awesome question. I, I'd also say like my view is kind of and my view has always been it's like never like overestimate how good a management team and important they can be. And never underestimate how bad a management team can be, especially in software, you know, and, and broader tech, right? Like over the last 10 years, I mean, it's, it's littered with that. And I think, you know, and, and especially in an environment like this, I think execution is never more important. Like I, because I could go through, I could go through name by name and be like, you know, there's management teams where if they were flying an airplane, I'd feel comfortable being in 29E. 
there's other ones where I'd rather take a bus than get on those flights. So I'm just saying, like, I do think, like, especially in this market, I especially when it comes to mid cap names, I think that is like so important because. But look, I see it from more of like, I see it from more of like a day to day. Like, in other words, like, let's say a software company, um, you know, going like in an environment like this, there's management teams that are more dialed in to what's going on with their customers day to day. They'll change things like quota, maybe pricing, you know, maybe they'll, they'll have much more proactive programs, you know, they'll be visiting more customers. Then there's others that are just, they're, they're, they're not, they don't have the pulse. And ultimately, it might take a quarter or two, but eventually, those are companies that, you know, I think run into significant problems, and a lot of those are the ones that were negative on. All right, now let's uh, let's pivot a little bit to uh, EV and Tesla here, because on Twitter there is a uh, a lot of emotional reactions to uh, electric vehicles. I put out a a poll uh, a couple of days ago, I think it was, and I said, you know, our our electric vehicles, uh, I think uh, I said either a scam or something like that. Some guy used some kind of term just to get a little bit of an emotional response. I'll share the, the poll results. I haven't seen it actually in, in a, uh, since I put it out. But um, talk about uh, the what people get wrong and right about the EV space, because it seems to me that uh, there's a lot more complications to the idea of an electrified future than uh, simply what Musk says. Well, first off, like when it comes to like Tesla and Musk, so let's just start off. If you, from a valuation perspective, if you view Tesla just as a regular automobile company, remember, compare it to Toyota and all the valuations of other automobile companies, you would never in a million years be bullish on that. You'd be super bearish, which is what many have been over the last decade. And I, but look, to, 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 to understand, like, I understand why people are bad. Like, I understand that view. It's, it's my view that electric vehicle and what Tesla has done, especially on the scale side, is that it's much more of an ecosystem play in, in terms of like, if you look at FSD and software, I mean, look at their margins, right? Like, their margins are dramatically different than other automobile companies because of the software piece. And I think more and more what's happening across EVs, and, and you look, you see with Rivian, you're starting to see with Lucid, you're seeing with GM, Ford, VW, more and more they're trying to own more and more of the software because that's obviously the high margin piece. I believe like when it comes to EVs, the reason it's so emotional is that there's a big argument about like competition, scale. And how come it won't just be a market like a BlackBerry, right? Where others come in and, and then they ultimately just, you know, basically fall apart. I think the Tesla dynamics always been underestimated, the scale. And I think ultimately that's why it's such a divisive name between bulls and bears, right? Like, like there's people like, that on a daily basis, like all they're focused on is just bearish on Tesla. And look, that's, you know, that's their prerogative, right? But, but obviously we're on the other side of that. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Right. And to your point, I think, you know, people equate EV with Tesla when it's, you know, bigger than Tesla. But but there's this other um, dilemma, which is that there's this belief out there that it's going to be the solution to all of this reliance on fossil fuels. But even uh, Musk himself recently, I think, tweeted out this idea that you got to get nuclear. You got to you got to you got to get the grid ready uh, if you're going to have this kind of future of of everything being uh, an electric vehicle. So. How do you how do you factor in uh, that aspect of a, a bullish case around the theme? Because unless you've got enough electricity, it doesn't matter how, how many well, cars you right. produce. No, and I think like I saw Kyle Bass this week. I said so on ESG. Like I think it's it's a it's dangerous. Like when people say like it's the end all to, from a from a solution environmentally speaking. Because look, because obviously like, we've been to countless factories around the world and raw material areas in all types of places. And the point is like, it's, there's a lot of complexity in terms of making EVs. And the thing is, is that from a raw materials to how raw materials are ultimately mined, where they're mined, whether it's Congo or, you know, Indonesia or whatever, to, to just say that it's with a snap of a fingers, that's just the wrong, that's the wrong approach. And I agree to those that, that that kind of push back on, and my view of EVs is relative to the automobile industry. In other words, like as a percentage basis of overall autos that are sold today, if you think it's going to triple over the next seven, eight, ten years, there's going to be a lot of winners in that. It's not just Tesla, but there's going to be a lot of winners in the EV space, and I think you have to play that. In terms of from a from from a theme perspective, and and that's why that's been one of our biggest themes in terms of playing EVs. The problem's been is that it goes back to what I said before, like the scale, managing teams that couldn't operate their businesses, managing teams that basically underestimated the, you know, I think the dynamics of the market. It's been a black, I mean, a lot of it's been a black eye for the EV space. If I go back to the last few years, you know, a lot of the things that have happened um, in, in terms of, you know, I think, tainting the investor view of the industry. Yeah, no, I, 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 that, that makes sense. It kind of goes back to this point that, you know, people just regurgitate things and react instead of thinking a little bit deeper. And, you know, if you start asking a little bit deeper some other questions to really kind of get a sense of what's happening, which unfortunately politicians are notoriously not good at, it becomes much more of a complicated thesis in terms of time frame, not in terms of the end point, but how you get there. Well, even, I mean, even to that point, like, you know, I was, I was down in DC and like, I was talking to, you know, major politician and we were talking about EVs, right. And, and this in, you know, individual just gave like the typical talking points, right. About like where it's going and, how it could be the ultimate game changer. But then you're like, 
But, but I just push back on it being like that. First of all, it's a carrot in the stick relative to the amount of infrastructure that needs to be built out and the grids and the charging stations and everything else. So it's just one of those things where a simple tax credit is not going to be the major game changer that's all of a, gonna, all of a sudden going to stimulate EV demand. And I think you're right. I think it's easy to get into like a talking point perspective, which is much different when you're actually at feet on the ground. How does um how do geopolitical tensions factor in all this? Because you can't really have EV without lithium. And you know, China, <laughs> right? You can I think everybody would largely agree that there's some kind of major conflict at some point coming with China. Who knows if it's sooner or later, but something's coming, right? I mean, we're on some kind of a path, hopefully not, yeah. but right. So so how do you factor that into sort of a longer term thesis? Because the longer term thesis can get very much derailed by uh, but the owners of the rare earth uh, minerals just basically saying we're not going to give this to you anymore. Well, no, of course. But then, but then it also goes back to like the Apple China thesis, the Tesla China the retaliation, right? Like, like as soon as the Nvidia stuff came out last night, like I already had a few emails. Oh, it's going to be negative for Apple or Tesla, whatever that they retaliate. So I think there's always that worry. But then again, it comes down to like Apple is you know top three employer in China. So, but, but when it comes to the raw materials, look, it's that, that ultimately is like when it comes to natural resource oil and gas, obviously Middle East, when it comes to net, when it comes to raw materials in terms of EVs, it's China, right? So in other words, like you are beholden to a region regardless of, you know, which, which way you move. And look, and I think that's why there's some that, that are focused on like maritime and other areas in terms of mining, but the reality, it's no different than, you know, the CHIPS Act. You could talk and you could dedicate significant amount of dollars, and, but it, the reality is like, it's cemented in Asia. Like Apple is going to continue to be in China and that's not changing. So I just think that is always going to be a risk for raw material, but also I think it shows why like GM, Ford, Tesla, more and more going into like 2025, 2026, they're all trying to secure their raw materials because they want to, They don't want to be in a situation where the emperor doesn't have any clothes. So I feel like uh, that's a good transition uh, to Musk and Twitter for a moment. And usually I don't really yeah, yeah. get that in depth around you know things like this. But uh, you know, I, I've said this this many times before in in spaces that. I always worry about what this drama that's going on with Twitter, uh, how this ends up playing out, because like many of us on this uh, space, uh, we have a large part of our social media eggs in this Twitter basket. Uh, and you never know how this ends up being damaging to them. And then by extension, those that are using it for their own uh, business and personal purposes. Um, talk about uh, how you are viewing this legal battle with Musk and Twitter for a moment. Um, for whatever it's worth, I do believe that Musk is probably – more right than wrong around the bot issue. But uh, talk about what's what's happening here and how you think this might play out. Well, first, and then there's the league, there's like the legal aspect of it. And then there's like the like common sense, but just like the, the like a PR perspective. So like legally, he's in very weak position going into Delaware court. I mean, we, we've talked to many like legal experts on the matter in terms of going Delaware Chancery Court. So like 
Twitter has a strong case against Musk from the actual deal perspective in terms of enforcing the deal or like we've said, probably like a five to $10 billion settlement um, in terms of where that could head. That's why the billion dollar breakup fee that Musk has, again, we view that as a pipe dream that that would actually, like that. I almost put that off table, like that that would be a scenario. I think the Zachos situation with the whistleblower, it has definitely changed the calculus. And I think you see that reflected in Twitter stock because it was viewed as Twitter was in a glide course to win this going into court. Zacco was obviously, it's a huge situation in terms of how, you know, then they'll, and they subpoenaed and then Zacco will also be in front of Senate in, uh, in mid-September. The security issues will be front and center in the beltway. Look, our view is that they are both sides are going to be forced to try to renegotiate this deal. And that's why like we we ultimately view it that Musk will own Twitter at a lower price. Now our price target's fifty, it could be lower, okay, because of the bot issue. But but that's our view of where it heads. In other words, like because once they get into court, if they step in the court in October and they haven't settled this or renegotiated, then Musk is in a situation where likely he's gonna have to pay five, ten billion in some sort of out of court settlement or in a forced performance, basically have to buy Twitter fifty four twenty, and, and also remember, like because Tesla is like a is also a Delaware corporation. You know, there's complexity there in terms of Musk stock and everything like that. So the point is, like, that's our view is that ultimately they don't step into court. And Musk ends up buying Twitter at a lower price. Dan, uh, do you, do you think that um, do you think Musk just got caught up? in all the fervor it was just Definitely. exciting for him and that he didn't really mm-hmm. never had any intention because i think this is this goes back to my worry about twitter it's like all right so if you're gonna if he's if he's gonna be forced to uh, buy twitter even at a lower evaluation but he never really wanted it to begin with and it's more of a vanity project let's call it right then that has a lot of implications on all of us here well no well first off like our view of musk with twitter is it was definitely a vulnerable situation in terms of there was no poison pill, the ownership structure, the, the stock was basically on a downward treadmill. And when Musk ultimately bought the 9.9 stake and then started the negotiations with the board, like once basically that did not go well and Musk did not want to just sit in a boardroom, then ultimately became much more hostile. And that's where I think the, the whole calculus changed. I do believe because of the overhang that it had on Tesla stock, you know, it, I mean, we, you know, we viewed it as it was about $150 per share overhang. I think Musk definitely like did not calculate that right in terms of the impact because of his ownership of Tesla and the leverage in terms of for the deal. And then market changed dramatically going back since April. And I viewed it as a cold feet, scapegoat, whatever you want to call it. The bot issue is clearly taking on a life of its own. But I do believe this was something that started off as one thing, ended up as another. The problem now is legally speaking, because of you know him signing that deal and the wave of due diligence and everything else, you know, there's he goes in with weak hands, legally speaking, which it, which is ultimately like why you know, I believe he's going to have to 
you know, clearly in the month of September, either you know, likely try to renegotiate this. No, it's actually it's come up like in a few investor conversations because I think there has been a view that because of the you know, the, like you said, there's such a focus on the country of origin in terms of the credits and and obviously the seventy five hundred. Look, I think when it comes down to like Tesla, like I I just continue to view what they've done from a battery production perspective, especially even before forty six eighty and what they're doing in Austin. I think more and more like they will have that benefit. But I do also believe when it comes to like some of the ba- like there's like Microbass and Quamscape and some of the other battery players. Like I think when you look at this act. The supply chain, even the, there's names like Lie Cycle, which is like a, a EV recycling plant. Like there are a lot of impacts here. Not even just Tesla, but especially when you go into the supply chain, that it's going to impact positively. You know, um, and even on the commercial side as well, right? Like in other words, like when you just think about like Altium and everything that GM's trying to do, like I know, like especially within the Tesla community, you know, anytime you bring up GM, it's like, oh, uh, you know, it, obviously there's a hugely negative view, but, but ultimately from a battery production perspective on where this is all heading, I mean, you're going to have, it's going to be an incremental, what, 40, 50 billion, just between a few of the automakers. That's, um, that's going to be incrementally spent on battery technology in the next five years. Yeah. So, so there's, there's names that I view as like where they could be over the next year or relative to where they might be mispriced in the interim. I mean, our view, our view of ratings is, especially with some of these stocks that, you know, they move significant. I think it's also created a lot of our upgrades and downgrades, right? Like, in other words, like sometimes there are stocks, which I ultimately get view as like mispriced. And I think you also have to, I, but, but I think you have to have the fundamental thesis as well. So in other words, like the names that we're bullish on are names fundamentally that we believe are ones whether it's they're mispriced or they can navigate, you know, what I view as kind of this macro environment, you know, much better than I think is priced into the names. And I'd also say just just finally, I'd also say that, um, you know, I think as we come back from Labor Day, you know, I think there's just some trends that are going to be front and center, like. With a lot of the off-quarter earnings, I mean, obviously we saw Okta last night, which is super disappointing. CrowdStrike was strong. Power was strong. Now, obviously, we'll, we'll get Oracle, we'll get Zscaler. And then I think more and more, it's like, you know, it's trying to understand, have the fundamentals start to deteriorate like I think a lot of these stocks are factoring in. And if not, then I think it ultimately starts to be our view that, you know, I think just like we we had this earnings season, I think earnings could actually be more of a positive catalyst for tech than a negative. Yeah, and that's a great question. Well, especially it's a great question. Like if you look at Tesla, you know, 
one of the biggest issues that they've had is battery component shortages. I do think, I think Tesla is now in much more of a position of strength than they were even six, nine months ago. I think 4680 is going to be significant for them as well. But I do, from a battery shortage perspective, like even when I, if I model out, when I model out Rivian, Tesla, a lot of the other EV players, I don't see significant shortages relative to demand supply till probably 2025, 2026. So I would say right now, that's not something that's priced in because when we, at least when we look out, I think that's, I think there's no supply demand imbalance relative to where EVs we should be over the next year or two. So I think that's a good way to end the space. This was a really quite informative. Everybody, please, again, please make sure you follow uh, Dan Ives. I've got a number of other scheduled spaces coming up. You'll see those uh, shortly. Uh, Dan, really do appreciate the hour here. And no, everybody- thanks for having me. And have a great Labor Day, everyone. And anyone has questions, whatever, just ping me. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.